You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Before we get into the show today, just wanted to thank all of our listeners. You know, we really do appreciate you, and it's because of you that we've had such tremendous growth with the show. Also, thanks to all y'all who have submitted questions that you want asked and answered from our millionaire guests, and those who have written in various suggestions. We're going to start incorporating some of those in, in future episodes. We've got some rapid-fire questions that are going to be incorporated in some future interviews throughout the summer, and we've got a lot of exciting things planned for the show. So... Stay tuned for all that. Also, if you want to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'd be happy to schedule a time and get an interview on the calendar. We also appreciate it if you leave us a review on iTunes. If you like the show, it kind of helps us get the word out. Um, And just wanted to to read a recent interview. It says, great show. Millionaire status is for the masses. I love listening to Jason Clark interviewing everyday millionaires. I'm a huge fan of Thomas Stanley's work on The Millionaire Next Door. And I feel like I'm listening to a future chapters of the book with each interview. So again, kind of going back to our goal, that's that's our goal. That's what we're trying to, to do is to tell the story of everyday millionaires. So please feel free to leave us a comment. We greatly appreciate it. Also, if you're looking for a multifamily investment opportunities, uh, we're looking to raise money for another deal. It's kind of in the process in both the southwest and in the northeast region. So if you're interested there, please reach out. We'd love to have you. We'd love to talk to you, to connect with you. Uh, We love meeting any of our listeners. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So on today's show, we have Dr. Corey Fawcett, and he has a current net worth of 6.4 million, just under 6.5 million. And he's got about 60% in real estate, 30% in the markets, 4% in cash, and then 6% among other things. He currently owns about 64 units, uh, it's across five complexes and one commercial property, and he's now retired and travels about half the time. So prior to his retirement, he was a doctor, a surgeon. He maxed out his his income at 250k, and has a and at that time he had a savings rate of of about 100k a year, over 50 percent of his income. He. Uh, had about 500k in in debt at one point after buying into his practice and buying an RV, and he talks about his path to paying that off in just under six years. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview with Corey. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Corey Fawcett. Corey, do you want to just give us a little about your background and uh, what you're up to now? Uh, sure. Uh, I grew up in a, uh, a small town, uh, decided to become a doctor, wanted to be a doctor my whole life, ever since I was a kid, and went through that whole path and moved back home after going to Stanford and then Oregon Health Sciences University and then uh, Pern Medical Center, finally moved back to home and settled a half hour away from my parents and set into a practice that lasted for 20 years uh, in one location. Um, and then I wanted to go part-time, so I changed to doing a little bit of locums work and, and kind of went around to small critical access hospitals that are in rural areas that didn't have enough surgeons and just helped out for about three years before finally throwing in the towel and retiring from medicine. 
during that part-time uh, era, uh, I decided to start a business to teach doctors about money uh, called Prescription for Financial Success. And I wrote three books, uh, one for the resident just getting out of uh, training, how to make that transition, one to teach doctors how to get out of debt, because none of the debt books had numbers that doctors related to. Um, you know, when, when, when somebody screams at Dave Ramsey that they paid off their $30,000 in debt, the doctor with $600,000 doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to them. You know, so what? So I tried to write a book uh, that would relate to them. And then the third book was how to get out of medicine eventually and retire. But I've kind of been teaching people about finance my whole life. And I just decided here at the end that why not turn my avocation into a vocation? And off I went. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? About just under six and a half million. And how is that broken up? Um, I have a very heavy influence of real estate. Um, about 60% of my net worth is real estate. Um, about 30% is uh, in the stock market. And that's all in some kind of protected account like a 401k or IRAs. Um, and about uh, 4% in cash. Um, I've uh, got started into real estate investing in uh, 2001. And as I began to invest in real estate, it took off in value so greatly that it became a huge part of my net worth. It just kind of overshadowed everything. And so that's where it stands today. It's about 60%. Yeah, let's get into that real estate a little bit. What, what makes up that, that 60% of your real estate? Um, the bulk of it is uh, apartment complexes. I bought uh, five complexes, which turned out to be about one complex per year. I started buying, back in, in the late 90s, I decided to become debt-free and pay off half a million dollars of my debt. And when I became debt-free, we said, well, what are we going to do with all this money now? You know, all this money we used to be making debt payments with. And we decided we would get into real estate. Uh, I used to help my grandmother with her real estate. She had single-family homes, and I was kind of her maintenance man to help them out uh, when I was young. And so I learned about this whole process. And so that's where we decided to put our money. So in 2001, we bought our first apartment complex, which was a 31-unit complex that I bought. Uh, it's a seven-figure value. I bought it with no money down, cash back at closing. They actually paid me to take the building. And each year, I continued to watch for a good bargain. And I bought one a year for about five years. And then my wife said, okay, that's enough. We got enough. That's more than will take care of us for the rest of our life. You don't need to buy any more because every time you buy some more, that's a little more work, a little more time away from home. And so I stopped buying in about 2007 and never went shopping for a place again. Uh, also in that 60% uh, is about is my home, which is paid for. It's worth just under 700000 And uh, one... Uh, commercial uh, investment that's a group of doctors that owns uh, a surgery center and a medical office building next to it. And a couple of little miscellaneous uh, small pieces. I own a, a half of a house uh, that I helped somebody out with who was having 
uh, trouble making ends meet. And it was a relative, and I said, well, what if I just bought out the other half of your house? And then he became uh, with no mortgage and helped him. So I, I got a little couple of pieces like that. Sure. So talk us through that, that deal that you purchased with no money down. How did you find that deal, and how did you kind of arrange the financing to make that work so that you basically got paid at closing? Well, um, I, I took a course uh, that Char- Carlton Sheets put out called No Money Down Real Estate. You used to see it on late night TV. You know, they were advertising this course, and we were getting ready to buy, uh, get into the real estate, and I said, well, that's a good course. Let's just take a quick course on real estate. And it was probably the best thing I've ever seen of putting everything about real estate together in one place. It was a really great course. Right in the middle of the course was a little bit about how do you do it with no money down. And so uh, I kind of learned his techniques. And what I did with that purchase was um, I asked the owner who was selling it what he needed and he was going to get out of the business of real estate buy a sailboat and sail around the world that's what he wanted to do so he owned the building free and clear it was a 31 unit complex and uh, I made an offer for him I found out how much cash he needed that if I got him that much cash, and the cash he needed was to pay off his house, buy the boat, have a little spending money, and I don't—that was something like three hundred thousand dollars. And uh, he would carry the rest, so he could uh, get what he needed to move on to his next thing. And I would be sending him a check for the rest of his life. Um, he was an old guy, uh, and he could uh, sail around the world, and I'd just keep positive money and he could just take it out of his account wherever he was. He loved that idea. Um, my realtor kicked in uh, his realtor fees as well as loaning me the difference uh, so that he funded the down payment to give this guy the money he needed to go on and the prior owner carried the main mortgage. And so I made this offer, I put it all together, and the realtor says, well, that's never going to fly. He's not going to do that. And I said, well, let's explain it to him. And by the way, I'm going to present the offer to him. I'm not going to have my realtor present it to your realtor and and come around to him. I'm going to present it directly to him. And we set up a meeting, and I presented the offer. This is what I can do for you. This will get you everything you need, and you're on your way. And he said, deal. Deal. And my realtor's jaw drops open, and he says, uh, man, if I'd have known he'd have done that, I'd have bought the place. <laughs> so, uh, so I picked up this place, and it, it, was about, it was financed at about 105% or something like that, 103%. And so when all was said and done, and I got the, you know, the money for the tax prorating, and I got the money for deposits, when all was said and done, I walked away from the deal with a check, and it was a small check. I don't remember what it was, uh, you know, three or four thousand dollars. But I got actually paid to take over that thirty-one unit apartment complex. Wow! And what were the terms of the mortgage? What was the rate, and and how long? So back in nineteen or two thousand and one, we set the mortgage up at 
8% 30-year fixed mortgage. And then have you refinanced that since? Um, or paid it off? I did. But the terms that we said, see, he needed to be able to sail around the world. And so I told him that I wouldn't pay him off early. I would you know, honor this so that he got his money for the rest of his life. So he took off sailing around the world and he found New Zealand and he stopped right there and he would he didn't go any farther. He just loved New Zealand. <laughs> he actually got rid of his US citizenship, became a New Zealand citizen and stayed in New Zealand. And so at about oh five years or so, six years, some somewhere in that time frame after that, the dollar compared to the New Zealand currency was losing ground. And every time he cashed my check, he got less money because of the money exchange. So he contacted me one day and he said, listen, uh, this is not doing good for me because every day or every month I get less money from you because of this currency thing. And I think it's going to get worse. Is there any way you could just pay me off? And then I stop the bleeding and it won't get any worse than it is now. So uh, I said, you know, we had a a clause in there that I couldn't pay him off early. I said, you send me paperwork that says you remove that clause from our contract and I'll refinance and pay you off. And so I was able to refinance it. And at that time, interest rates were down to 5%. And so I refinanced him out at uh, 5%, and it, which cost me about $15,000 to refinance that place in charges. And I saved 3% uh, on his loan. Uh, which turned out to be a good deal for me. And what is that building cash flow currently? Um, I get spendable uh, money. Uh, what would that one be? That is about, well, I don't know the answer to that because I have them all together. All together, the units bring in about $150,000 a year to spend. And that's how many units total? 64 units. 64. I, so that's this building. And then, and then what are the other units? I've got a, a, a 12 unit place, a four unit place, an eight unit place and a nine unit place. Wow. But the nine unit place is in that other group. So it's not included in the, making that 150,000. Um, so that'd be, you know, 55 units make that. And I'm not sure exactly how much comes from this one, but the bulk of it comes from this one because it's the biggest um, I mean, I'd guess it's somewhere in the $90,000 a year now that that place makes. And are all of those nearby or, or are they sourced differently or, or where are those located? All of them are within uh, probably three miles of my house. Uh, and they're all located between my house and the hospital that I worked at. So every time I, you know, I manage them myself while I was a full-time surgeon. And so I could actually go between my house and the hospital and stop in at the apartment if there was something that I needed to look at. Uh, or coming home from the hospital, I could stop in and, and check on something and fix it. So um, it made it uh, pretty easy. I, I'm of the opinion that if, if, and this is something I learned from the Carl and Cheese course, if your rental is more than 20 minutes away from your home, it will be a millstone around your neck. Uh, so I am not one who favors owning property at a distance just because it's a good deal in kansas i don't live in kansas i'm not really interested in buying property in kansas i think it ought to be close because i kind of watch over it 
Yeah. I want to ask you about the terms on that first deal. So you said you'd pay him a portion of the of the cash flow per, what was it, per month? Did no, you worry no. at all? I, I didn't pay him a portion of the cash flow. I paid him an 8% mortgage. Oh, you just paid him an inch? Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's a simple mortgage. So do you ever think about consolidating some of these smaller properties and buying a big one? Or do you like having, you know, several properties that you can manage? Um, if uh, I have not thought about it, um, I don't, pro I probably won't sell them ever. Um, they're paying me more money than I need to live on the way it is now. So why bother going through all the work of uh, selling another property, transferring it into another one, and go through that whole new learning curve of uh, another property. Uh, although now I have property management taking care of everything, so it would be, you know, less headache. Since I retired now and travel a lot, I can't manage them, so I had to turn it over to a property management company a few years ago. And uh, now I have a deal with them that if something big happens. They call me for a first right of refusal to fix it myself. Uh, mm. And if I'm home and I'm free, I'll go fix it. If I'm touring the world somewhere, I say, nope, take care of it. <laughs> so, uh, and I only do the big things, you know. So if I can do a, a $3,000 room turnover and my wife and I can go over there and do that job in three days, I just save myself $3,000. Yeah. And so uh, they take care of all the little stuff and then all the big stuff when I'm gone. So the same company manages all pro all the properties. They've got all the properties now, um, and that allows me to take off. And last year we were traveling, and we calculated that we were home only fifty percent of the days. Wow. Uh, so I want to back up to when you first came out of uh, med school before you started practicing. How much student loan debt did you have? Uh, I think I left medical. I left medical school with I think eighteen thousand dollars of student debt. And how long did that take for you to pay off? And and how fast or how quick did you attack that? And, and the reason it was so low is because I joined the military and they paid for everything after my first year. Uh, oh, I see. So um, what I did was I paid it all off except for one loan uh, during residency. So before I finished my residency, it was all paid down except for one loan that came from Stanford that was at 3%. I, I, had, a, uh, I had a hang up with paying that one off because the interest was so low and my wife wanted to get it paid off. And, one, and it, we could have just wrote a check. I mean, it, one month's leftover money would have paid it off. And, you know, I had this hang up, what a stupid hang up over this little, it was only about $4,000, but it was only 3%. And Finally, my wife convinced me to go ahead and just pay the last one off, and uh, I did, and I felt really good when that happened. But before I did that, you know, I left medical school with very, or left residency with very little debt. But once we got our job, we borrowed a lot of money, and I bought a practice, I bought a motorhome, I bought a house. Um, we ended up within three years of starting my practice going from only that $4,000 debt to being half a million dollars in debt. And I decided, uh, actually my wife decided <laughs> that she wanted us to get rid of that. So she got me a book for a friend called the uh, debt free and prosperous living. And I read that book and 
it said I could be all paid off in less than seven years. And I didn't believe that was possible. So I calculated it out and it was three and a half years. And I gave it to my wife says, how soon could we be done if we did this? And she said, she calculated out three and a half years. So we decided to become debt free. And so we took off on that program aggressively to get out of debt. And it took us just under six years to do it. And in the process, we bought two new cars, a surgery center, and a, a bigger house. And that's what extended us from three and a half to six years uh, to do that. But we became very aggressive at paying off our debt. And in 2001, we became debt free uh, and then began investing in uh, these apartments. Wow, that's pretty crazy. So when you started working, you were basically debt free, you had that 4,000. And then, you know, with a few purchases and the practice, you went back up to 500,000 and then decided to to just attack it. Yes. And I and was okay with the debt. And, and I found that most guys don't mind being in debt, but their wives are not so keen about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so the wives, uh, you know, my wife thought, you know, if, if she had to pay that off, she couldn't earn enough money to do it. Uh, and so she was worried that, that uh, if something happened to me, it, it was just hanging over her. And so she wanted to get rid of it. And after I got the book, I wanted to get rid of it. Too. Yeah. And in those first five years, what was your income and how much were you, you allocating to pay off the debt? Um, we, if we back up a little bit, when I first started my job as a resident, I got married a few months later. And my wife and I both earned about the same income and in the low 20000 thousands a year each. And we agreed when we first got married that we would only live on half of our income and we would save the other half. And we did that all through residency, and that's how the debts got paid off. And, and when we started our practice, we continued on with that same thing. So when I first moved to town, uh, my initial contract was for $100,000 a year uh, plus bonus um, back in 1993. And uh, we, had, uh, we were saving about half of it. And I think my income peaked. Uh, my W-2 income peaked at about 250000 uh, And through most of that time, we were always uh, putting away in some kind of an investment or paying off our debt, which I considered an investment. Every time I put a dollar towards my debt, my net worth went up a dollar. You know, Or if I put it in a stock, it went up a dollar. Either way, it went up a dollar. So we you know, used about half of our income throughout our life uh, up until we decided to cut back a few years ago. So I've been saving a big, big chunk, $100,000 a year plus after I became partner. When you were paying off that, that 500000 were you still investing, putting money away into retirement accounts? Yes. Okay. Um, from the day we got married back as a resident, we were both maxing out our IRAs. And as a resident, I had a deferred compensation account uh, available and I was maxing that out. So we were maxing out. We were putting something like $9,000 a year into retirement plans as a resident. Wow. And then continued that on when I became a partner, then I had the 401k plan. And so we still were investing, fully funding our both of our IRAs, plus fully funding our retirement plan. 
and then whatever was left over, we were using for, for uh, debt payment uh, to get out, out of debt. And then later to make other investments as well uh, with the properties. Um, but we uh, always, up until about 2005 or 2006, maxed out both. Around 2006, uh, I quit putting any money into IRAs. I just stopped. I said, we got enough. It's going to be, by the time this grows to where it's going, and I converted that money into paying off uh, my real estate debt uh, to make those more profitable, more cash flow. I see. I thought, at the time, I could make a guaranteed 8%. Um, by paying off real estate debt with the money mm-hmm. and instead of putting it in the stock market and getting who knows what. And I really like the guaranteed 8% idea. And so we stopped putting in money in our IRA uh, and just let it continue working at work, the 401k and the profit sharing plan at work. So we kept those maxed out. I see. And, and over all those years investing in those tax-advantaged retirement accounts, was there a specific fund or family of funds that you particularly liked that you stayed with over all these years? Um, there, I, I use Schwab for my account. Okay. Um, and there isn't anything particular. Um, I really never paid any attention to the money investments. Um, the stuff that's in the 401k and profit-sharing plan at work, I never even looked at that. Someone else was in charge of the investments there. I have no idea what they're invested in. Hopefully next month, I'm going to have all that money actually transferred into my IRA. And for the first time in my life, I will be in charge of that money. But the money in our IRAs that we've managed, um, it's in a spattering of things. In fact, before this interview, I actually dug it out to see, well, what do I have? Because I haven't looked at it in years. Um, I'm kind of the type investor that, uh, I put the money in the account, buy something good with it. That's a long-term good growth investment. And then I don't look at it again. And so when the big market crash happened, I didn't notice because I wasn't looking at the stuff. I'm not taking it out. It doesn't matter how much it goes down. It'll go back up by the time I need it. <laughs> and so I never even... I didn't need to worry about, oh, look how much I've lost in the market today because I had no idea. I, I, until you're ready to pull it out, there's no point in even looking at it. Um, when I was young and first started investing, I looked at it every day. Every day I was watching the market. I was looking for bargains. I had newsletters. I was reading about what's the latest, greatest thing to buy. And then... Uh, I had two accounts. I had my IRA, which I was doing that with. And then my deferred comp account only had a couple of choices. There was nothing I could do about it. So I just left it in there. Well, after a couple of years, I kind of looked at the two accounts and I realized that that account that I was not paying attention to, it was doing just as good as the one that I was putting all my effort into. So all of that effort of following the market and looking for buys got me no additional return over just leaving the money alone. And that's when I kind of quit looking at it. Why am I wasting all my time futzing about this, looking for these great deals, when just leaving the money alone does just as good? Hmm. So I quit doing that. And then later on, when my son was, I don't know, seven or eight, I decided to teach him about how the stock market works. 
So we both got some play money, and we put it into an account so we could watch it grow. And we were going to each have $10,000 and invest in eight things, spread the money out. He picked his eight things. He picked just bread and butter stuff that he recognized. Me, I picked the stuff that was going to really turn out good because I knew how to pick stocks, right? Well, he blew me away. <laughs> a seven-year-old could outpick me on stocks because you can't predict the market. And it just kind of reinforced the fact that you don't need to be futzing around with this stuff. Just put the money someplace safe and long-term and let it grow. And I just proved twice then that me futzing with it and putting all that time and effort and buying newsletters and following the pundits um, didn't really help. You can't beat the market. They can't beat the market, and they do it for a living. So what makes me think I can beat the market when I'm doing it part-time? Hmm. I can't. Yeah. So I, I stopped wasting all my time doing that stuff, and I just would buy long-term investments. And so the stuff that I bought when I was a resident, my very first investment, I still own it. It's never been sold. I don't even look at it. And it happens to be Templeton Growth. And it happens to be a loaded fund. It was when I first bought my very first IRA and I went to somebody and I said, what do I do? And he says, well, let me help you get started. And he sold me the highest loaded fund that there was. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know that at the time. Shortly thereafter, I figured out that that guy only showed me stuff that had 5% loads. Wow. You know, he only showed me stuff that would make him a lot of money. And I realized that's not going to work out so good for me. And I stopped doing that and I started doing it on my own. I wasn't going to use his advice anymore. And then I opened up the Schwab account where I could start buying my own stuff. And I, but I still own that loaded fund that I bought way back then. I already paid the loan, the load. And uh, it's grown nicely since. Um, but I don't tend to look at the stuff and sell it. Just buy stuff that has a long track record and let it grow. Good stuff. So do you have a target net worth or, or number of doors you want to acquire in real estate? Or um, I finished acquiring real estate over a decade ago. Uh, my wife said, uh, you know, we have enough real estate now that will take care of us for the rest of our life. Why do we need to buy some more? That just uses up more of our time uh, and won't get us any better lifestyle because we already got enough. So she kind of said, well, why don't we do this? You can buy more real estate when you pay off all of this. <laughs> so we've just been paying off those loans. And as they got smaller, our cash flow got bigger. Uh, and now our cash flow from the property exceeds our expenses. Um, and we're still paying down those loans. So I had a target that was my retirement target. And that was to have a cash flow from my properties of $100,000 and to have a uh, million dollars in my retirement fund. And at the time I made that deal, um, my cost of living was $70,000 a year. And I lived a pretty nice life. We traveled all over the world um, with our kids. Um, and I thought that was going to be more than enough. And uh, we finally hit that mark. And 
I, I worked a few more years after that and then just decided to take another direction. And now I teach finance uh, to doctors and write books about that. That's awesome. So do you remember what age you became a millionaire? Yes. Uh, I was 37. And and how did it feel? Was it what you thought it would be or was it not as monumental? Um, I didn't feel a thing. Uh, I didn't. It, it wasn't a goal of mine. Um, at the time, uh, my goal was to become debt free and I became a millionaire two years before I became debt free. So the millionaire wasn't my goal. It just happened along my way. And I just kind of noticed, oh, hey, we just passed a million. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's, I had another target in mind that I was working on. And two years later, I hit that target. And that was a big celebration, which was to become debt free. But I did notice it took me 37 years to get the first million, but only four to hit the second million. Wow. Because once you got the first million, I mean, you had to work yourself to get that first million. But now on the second million, you're working on it. And your first million is working for you. So it took me four years to get the second million, two years to get the third million, one year to get the fourth million, and then the recession hit. So it took me seven years to get the next million, and then three years to the next million. You know, so it kind of goes faster once you once you get there. Except those recessions kind of slow you down a little bit. Yeah. What's your goal with your guys' money when you when you pass on? Is I'm not sure if you have kids or if you want to donate it to charities or do you guys talk about that or is that topic not really come up? Um, we have we have a trust and um, everything is in the trust. Um, I have a trust and my wife has a trust. It's kind of divided up. And what we had set up is is we give to charity fairly uh, aggressively all along. Uh, I remember a few years back, someone had asked me that question. I said, well, you know, I was just looking at it and we actually gave more to charity last year than we paid in taxes. <laughs> and he says, wow, I know how much you pay in taxes. So, <laughs> you know, uh, wow. And so we've been to giving to charity along the way. Um, and our plan is really to pass this on to the kids. That's, I have two, two boys and they'll run it uh, after we're gone. But we don't plan to be gone till for a long time. Sure. My wife's grandmother uh, lived to over 100. Wow. My two grandmothers, I just lost a couple of years ago. Uh, they were both 90s. And both of our parents are still alive. And we, our genetic makeup is such that we think we're going to be around a long time. So we'll be probably giving away money all along the way, and then there'll be a significant piece to leave behind. That's awesome. Wow. Good for you guys. And in 50 years, we can have you back on again. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we've just we've made our kids the trustees of the trust if we're no longer involved. Because my son, I mean, my son is 20, my oldest, uh, 26 and he already owns a house and a rental and he bought the rental before he even moved out of our house so he's very uh, he into um, the notion of using real estate the way we did and the way my grandmother did 
uh, and so he he'll just run the real estate himself after we're done. Nice, good for him. He's off to a good start. So, what advice do you would you give someone, or what mistakes have you made along the way? You know, um, my biggest my biggest mistake that I made was investing in a local company. You know, you get those stars in your eyes. Oh man, I'm going to own the next McDonald's, and you invest. That one investment probably cut my net worth by a million dollars because I invested about a third of a million dollars into that company. And this last year, the company went under. And 16 years ago, when I made the investment, if I had just put that into my property at 8%, it would have been over a million dollars today. Instead, I put it into a a startup company uh, with stars in my eyes. And uh, the money's gone today. That was my probably biggest financial blunder I've made. It cost me a million bucks, but you know, it didn't slow my retirement down. I mean, you can recover from pretty big mistakes as long as you have a good savings rate and you continue on like that. You live well within your means. You don't have debt. You can recover from blunders and you're going to make them. Um, I bought another startup company on the stock market. It's going to be the next great McDonald's. I still own the company. It's the first time I ever saw a reverse split, 100 to 1. You know, I bought all these shares. Now I think I own seven shares because they kept reverse splitting. They're worth zero. <laughs> so wow. I, would say, I would say do not buy individual stocks or that great startup like the restaurant that's starting in town that you think, oh, yeah, I can be a part owner of a restaurant. The failure rate of those restaurants is so high that just stay away from that stuff and just make a conservative investment in some mutual fund. I like index funds. Like one of my favorite is the Schwab 1000 because I happen to use Schwab. Um, Just put the money in the Schwab 1000 and don't look back and don't make the mistakes of thinking you can pick that next great business because I couldn't. You can't, and neither can anybody else. That's good advice. So you've, you've taken off and, and traveled a lot. Is there a favorite place that you've been to thus far or somewhere in the future that you're really looking forward to? You know, I just got home from my favorite trip uh, that I've been on, and it was a 31-day cruise of South America and the Amazon River. Wow. And what I learned on that cruise and what made it my favorite was that long cruises are not the same as short cruises. I didn't know that. I had never been on a long cruise before. And I was a little reluctant because uh, the longest one we'd been on was 14 days and I was ready to get off. I was a little worried when we took off that what if I want to leave in 14 days and we have to be there for 31? Well, it turns out when the 31 was over, I was not ready to get off. I had some obligations back home. I'm, I'm a worship leader at church and, and it was my turn. So I had to get back home. Otherwise, I think I'd have just stayed on the ship and kept going to the next place. (laughs) The difference I found is that a short cruise, a seven-day cruise, which is probably the most common, those are people who work and they're on vacation and they're trying to cram the most they can into that seven days. Those are very go-go trips. Lots of activities going on. Everybody's trying to get as much as they can. They almost need to rest when they get home from their vacation. You ever had a vacation? You got home, you thought you needed a day off just to recover from your vacation? Yep. 
Well, that's what the seven-day cruises were like. But the longer cruises, so this was a 68-day cruise, and we jumped on in the middle of it. The longer cruises, those are all retired people. Working people don't take 68-day cruises. So they're all retired. They're, all, they're not cramming anything into this. They're relaxing. They live on the boat. This is their home. They're just traveling the world on this boat. And it is a very much a slower pace. Uh, all of the people know who you are by name. They know who's in your party. Um, it, it was a very plus. I read 13 books that month on that boat. Wow. Um, I discovered their library because I didn't have enough reading material. And I could just go in the library. And everyone else was in that library, too. They were reading books and enjoying the sun and going on tours in the town. Uh, it was a completely different animal to go on a long cruise versus a short cruise. And that was my favorite vacation. Good stuff. You can, you can follow that vacation right now. It's actually playing on my Facebook page. There's a, a video every day that comes up on my Facebook page. And it's usually about financial tips, a little two to five minute video on one tip. But when I travel somewhere, I'm also showing people what it's like to be retired. And they follow me on whatever trip I'm on. So right now, I just got back, and so I loaded all that stuff on. And so it's playing out now through May 10th will be this trip uh, cruising the Amazon and Brazil. Cool. So other than, other than Facebook, where can uh, people find you at? Uh, my website is my name, drcoreysfawcett.com. And you can get in touch with me through there if you want to. I'm on Facebook, Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. There's a theme here. <laughs> uh, I have a blog uh, that comes out that's on my website that comes out uh, once a week. Uh, and I've got uh, three books out in the Doctor's Guide series. Doctor's Guide to um, Starting Your Practice Right, the Doctor's Guide to Eliminating Debt, which tells my debt journey. That $500 I got into debt and got back out of it, that journey is in there. And then the Doctor's Guide to Smart Career Alternatives and Retirement, the doctors who are ready to do something different. And I'm also on Twitter at, you guess it, Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. <laughs> so, Good uh, stuff. I'm pretty easy to find if you know my name. All right. Dr. Corey S. Fawcett, net worth just under $6.5 Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.